You're listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 5th of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I'm Emma Nelson and coming up on today's programme. We wouldn't have stood up an operation in the Red Sea now consisting of more than 20 nations to try to protect that commerce. The Red Sea is a vital waterway. How much do the attacks in the Red Sea affect the world's ability to get its goods? Also coming up. My working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. And in the meantime, I've got lots that I want to get on with. The UK Prime Minister announces, while at the same time not really announcing, the date of the general election. Plus, we'll dine at the last supper club in the North East. That's all coming up right here on The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now, the constant attacks on ships in the Red Sea are taking their toll, not only on the crew of those vessels and the US-led coalition deployed to keep peace in the region, but also the world's economy. With major shipping companies such as Maersk and Hapag Lloyd deeming the Red Sea too dangerous a route, diversions around Africa's Cape of Good Hope are adding up to two weeks to delivery times and creating an additional cost. Well, Jürgen Lian is head of shipping equity research at the Norwegian investment bank DNB Markets. I'm delighted to say he joins us. A very good afternoon to you, Jürgen. Good afternoon. So just explain to us, I mean, a a large proportion of the world's trade goes down this route, up to 15%, isn't it? So what is this disruption having? What effect is it having? Yeah, so it's, uh, you you mentioned the number, uh, and it depends a bit on what type of traffic you're talking about. So the one that's been most in focus uh, for this route uh, as of yet has been the container traffic. And there you actually see probably a bit more than 20% of container volumes actually flow through the canal connecting the Far East with the the West. Um, And any disruptions in that region will naturally have uh, large effects on on the flow of that cargo, the time it takes to get it there, and also the cost, um, as you mentioned. So when you talk about these containers going going through the Red Sea or not as it t- stands at the moment, the cargo that cont- they are containing, what is inside these these shipments? Oh, it can be uh, it can be essentially anything. Uh, the The rule of thumb here for container shipping is that the the cargo on board is very valuable uh, compared to other type commodity shipping, um, and therefore um, the what's interesting is that the the cost uh, as an as a proportion of the landed goods uh, wherever they are transported is is reasonably low uh, and has been uh, unless you see very exceptional rates as you saw in periods in twenty twenty one and twenty twenty two. So still. I I'd say that uh, you know the although freight rates uh, and the freight costs are increasing dramatically, uh, the the overall sort of percentage hit of this uh, probably not as large at least at, at high value uh, on the high value consumable goods that uh, people usually think about. I mean, when you look at the, the let's talk about the additional cost that this is all creating. If you have two weeks added onto your delivery times, you have the extra time it takes, you have the extra fuel required, you are adding up layer after layer of of, of extra cost. I mean, how much are we talking about here? Uh, So on the fuel side, because you have two aspects here. One is the direct cost additions, right? Because you sail for a longer distance and that, of course, uh, it demands more fuel and it also takes longer time. So you need to see that uh, return also getting back to the ship owner for employing that vessel for for a longer period of time. 
Uh, all in all, you, you saw the the diversion uh, costs that Maersk has listed this is a good example. I think yeah, they added two hundred dollars per twenty foot box and uh, four hundred dollars per forty foot box. So that's essentially to cover the added costs directly. But then there's a secondary effect, which is very interesting. So considering that a lot of the volume that previously went through the Suez Canal now is routed past uh, Africa instead, uh, that would soak up a lot more shipping capacity. And as you tighten the shipping markets, then you see this parabolic effect on the shipping rates, which have then been the main driver of adding costs on the margin going forward. And that's way more excessive uh, than what you're talking about in terms of direct fuel costs. So if you look at the cost to ship a container today from the Far East to Europe, uh, that has increased uh, for a 40 foot uh, equivalent uh, container box. It has increased by more than three and a half thousand dollars per box. And, you know, compared to the actual fuel edition that I said was around 400 maybe, you know, that's uh, that's uh, way in excess of that and shows the sensitivity here. And what's really important is how this impacts the shipping markets rather than what the direct fuel additional costs are. So you have the, all those extra costs, the shipping costs, the, the, the time, the, the, the fuel, etc. How long is it going to be until those costs are passed on directly to us? You see the... Uh, the uh... The immediate effect here was that all cargo that was uh, re uh, redirected around Africa was added this surcharge on, so that would be rather swiftly, but that's the small part of it. And then you have the spot markets today for all additional cargo that's being loaded as we speak, and that has to reflect this, uh, this new higher spot market, and that takes some time before that gets into uh the uh, the end prices of course so that's that's a process uh, and the big question here is naturally how long this is going to last as well because this is something that ends within a few weeks then of course the effects won't be as dramatic if this is something that can last for weeks and even months then we're starting to see how this spills through to to cost inflation in the other end so right let's talk about the longer term for this one because there is no indication that the Israel Hamas conflict is abating anytime soon in fact there is you know there is a thought this could go on for months and years as a result there is the likelihood that those attacks by Houthi rebels from Iran will continue uh, so in your what line of work how are you planning for a long term disruption to what should be one of the smoothest, easiest shipment areas in the world? Uh, <laughs> good question. Uh, we weren't really planning uh, for this to happen. Uh, I've mentioned it a couple of times as a freak event that could happen to, to improve the market because what when we were looking at the container sector uh, prior to this, we saw a very, very poor market outlook, in fact. So this is something that's somewhat of a lifeline for them, you can say, that should extend the, the happy days that they've had for the past few years in terms of stellar earnings. Um, but if this is something that extends for a longer time, then of course, more and more of this rolls into the, into the end cost, as I said, because this has a lot to do with the contract structure in the business as well. There's a lot of long-term contracts here that are renewed on usually an annual basis. So if this is something that extends for a sustained period of time, then you're going to see these new costs that we just talked about reflected in the long-term prices as well. And that's when you really start to see, uh, see an impact on, on what freight cost means for the end consumer like you and I. And what will it mean or what will it take rather for the likes of Maersk and Hapag Lloyd to think that the Red Sea is safe enough to return to? 
I think that's a very interesting point, because uh, if you look at what transits have been impacted the most up until now, it's been a very clear uh, impact on the container freight. But if you look at tanker freight, dry bulk uh, freight uh, and other types of cargo, they have continued to transit rather normally uh, through the canal. So it's a bit strange that you have this one segment that believes this the risks are uh, too big to manage, while you clearly see that a lot of the other shipping companies in other sectors are managing that risk still. Um, so that's been uh, a bit confusing to us, to be honest. Is this a, a broader consensus among shipping companies that it's dangerous to be there? Then no one should be transiting the canal, not only the container shippers and the liner shippers. Um, so uh, yeah, it, it, that's a good question. Uh, we saw Maersk try to direct vessels back again into the Red Sea, but had an attack immediately, which led them again to, uh, until further notice, redirect uh, volumes around Africa instead. And that's that's the case for the time being. How long that's going to last, that's the question that everyone's asking. And I don't really have any any very good answer, I'm afraid. Jürgen Leon, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. The time is nine minutes past midday here in London. A quick look now at the day's other news headlines. Here's Sophie Monaghan-Coombs. Thanks, Emma. North Korea has fired more than 200 artillery rounds towards a South Korean island, triggering an order for residents to stay indoors. The shells did not enter the South's territory but landed in the buffer zone between the two countries. Seoul's military responded with its own live-fire drills. The Islamic State has claimed responsibility for two bombings that killed nearly 100 people in southern Iran on Wednesday. The Islamist terror group said two of its members had detonated explosive belts at a memorial service for a top Iranian commander in the city of Kerman. British actress Glynis Johns, best known for her role as Mrs Winifred Banks in Mary Poppins, has died aged 100. In an eight-decade career, John starred in over 60 films, including While You Were Sleeping and The Sundowners, which earned her an Oscar nomination. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Emma. Thank you very much indeed, Sophie. Now, the White House says Russia is using North Korean missiles against Ukraine. White House National Security Council spokesperson John Kirby told a press conference on Thursday that the US is concerned at the transfer of armaments for use by Moscow and that the issue will be raised at the UN Security Council. This is a significant and concerning escalation in the DPRK's support for Russia. In return for its support, we assess that Pyongyang is seeking military assistance from Russia, including fighter aircraft, surface-to-air missiles, armored vehicles, ballistic missile production equipment or materials, and other advanced technologies. This would have concerning security implications for the Korean Peninsula and the Indo-Pacific region. We've also said publicly that Russia is seeking to acquire close-range ballistic missiles from Iran. That was John Kirby, their White House National Security Council spokesperson. While well, listening to that was Mark Galliotti, security analyst and author of Putin's Wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. A regular voice here on Monocle Radio 2. Uh, welcome, Mark. Good to be back. So there have been reports about North Korea supplying items for a while, namely high-tech components. But that list given by John Kirby, which large ballistic missile production equipment, that is a step up, isn't it? 
It is a step up, but it's hardly a surprising one. I mean, we've got estimates of anything from half a million to a million artillery rounds being provided by the North Koreans, which is basically half to one month's worth of some Russian consumption. So why would they not also move into the, the, the larger kind of kit? And it's interesting that uh, the Russians aren't talking about this, but on the other hand, nor have they rushed to deny it. What lines does it cross? Well, this is an interesting question. I mean, the, the answer is it, it's uncertain that it does. I mean, clearly it's not quite the same as the provision of missiles to Ukraine by the West, because these are essentially not for use against the Russian mainland, but actually against targets within occupied Ukraine. But you know, to a large extent, one one is sort of open to questioning actually how, how big a deal this really is. What honestly did we expect? One of the problems is that by making North Korea such a pariah state, for obvious reasons, it also means that we have pretty much no traction on, on Pyongyang. The North Koreans need all sorts of things from the Russians. So, of course, they're going to sell what they can. Tell us a little bit about what else or who else is selling what to Russia? I mean, there's, there's mention of China selling helicopters. And the, the more that you hear about the supplies of, of armaments to Russia from other countries, it, one gives the impression that Ukraine is fighting a much bigger enemy than just Moscow. Yes, exactly. I think we can, we can almost think of it at three levels. I mean, the only countries that are actually directly providing military equipment and weapons, in other words, are North Korea and Iran at this stage, precisely because these are already under sanction. And therefore, from their point of view, A, what do they have to lose? And B, they regard this also as a blow struck against the West. Then there are countries like China, which aren't willing to go to that point, but are clearly providing what's called dual use technologies. So in other words, civilian, but with also with a military use, whether it's microchips or whether it's trucks that could be used to, to carry Russian military supplies. And finally, there are those countries which are ostensibly observing the rules, and these we, we countries like, say, Turkey or Brazil or the United Arab Emirates, and yet which have also been identified as, frankly, turning a blind eye to the shipment of components. I think that's one of the crucial things. It's not actually that the Russians necessarily always need finished goods. What they do need are microchips and other kinds of components for their existing defence factories. So precisely be between countries just turning a blind eye to countries willing to arm Russia, there are a lot of countries in the world that one way or the other are supporting the Russian war effort. Um, the fact that the United States is now raising it um, proactively, that adds a sort of fresh dynamism to the, to the problem, doesn't it? I mean, what, what do you expect can be done here? To be honest, I think the answer is is very little. I mean, we have to recognise. I mean, these these missiles. Yes, they are extra military capabilities for the Russians. They don't seem to be all that good. I mean, the first one that was launched actually seems to have, have hit an empty field in, in Zaporizhia region. But nonetheless, of the very fact that the Americans are raising it, the interesting thing is, are they just simply using North Korea as a way of trying to warn other countries, countries that are more amenable to American pressure? we're really beginning to crack down, so take this seriously. Or, or is it that they actually think that they have some kind of way of, of, of leveraging Pyongyang? So far, at least, it doesn't look like the latter is the case. So maybe it's just simply a way of just talking up the issue in the hope that other countries, which, as I said, are perhaps a little bit more on the fence, decide best not to actually start helping the Russians.
Mark Galliotti, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing with me, Emma Nelson. What's that coming over the hill? It's the latest edition of The Forecast, an annual magazine from the editors of Monocle that looks forward to the year ahead. The 2024 issue is brimming with thought-provoking and visually compelling journalism. Here are three things you will learn inside. One, which global cities are on the up? Our fifth Small Cities Index showcases the 25 places around the world offering the best of urban living in a more compact package. Two, how the shipping industry is using vintage sail ships to transport its wares. Three, which small Greek city has become a hub for artists and designers? Find out what 2024 holds in store. Pick up a copy of The Forecast from your local newsstand or subscribe today at monocle.com slash subscribe. Just nudging 12.17 here in London. You're back with a briefing with me, Emma Nelson. Now, we now have a date sort of, for the UK's general election this year. Yesterday, the British Prime Minister made this announcement. My working assumption is we'll have a general election in the second half of this year. And in the meantime, I've got lots that I want to get on with. Rishi Sunak's announcement somewhat overshone the leader of the opposition, Sir Keir Starmer's keynote speech. That was his efforts to set the tone for 2024. To truly defeat this miserablest Tory project... We must crush their politics of divide and decline with a new Project Hope. Not a grandiose utopian hope. Not the hope of the easy answer, the quick fix, the miracle cure. People have had their fill of that from politicians over the last 14 years. No, they need credible hope. A frank hope. A hope that levels with you about the hard road ahead but which shows you a way through. Light at the end of the tunnel. That's the opposition leader, Sir Keir Starmer, there. Well, Tim Bale is a professor of politics at Queen Mary University of London. Good afternoon, Tim. Good afternoon. So we have two things to deal with here. We have Rishi Sunak's um, revelation that something might happen some point in the, in the second half of the year. And then we have Sir Keir Starmer's desperately trying to hold on to the narrative. But the, the interesting thing with this one is that we sort of got a, a date, but we didn't, did we? No, he said it was his working assumption that the uh, election would take place sometime in the second half of the year. Um, But, of course, that still leaves open the possibility uh, that he may change his mind if he feels that um, the polls are beginning to turn in his favour. And, you know, perhaps he might be able to, as it were, cut his losses by going um, sooner rather than later. And I mean, there is a long history of prime ministers promising, you know, not to hold an election anytime soon and then doing so. Uh, Although actually, obviously, the precedents for doing that, Theresa May in 2017 being the obvious example, are not always particularly impressive. Well, the the interesting thing that I think quite a lot of commentators have picked up on is is Rishi Sunak's use of the word working assumption, because um, the general consensus when you use the, the expression working assumption is that you are assuming something about somebody else, not something about your own party. And and there was a sort of a, a slight snigger at the back that it, there was a sense that Rishi Sunak didn't really know what he was talking about. I mean, is there still that sense that, that Sunak is actually in control of the of the of the narrative for twenty twenty four? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's more to do with his kind of technocratic language, to be honest. I think that's the sort of uh, way that Rishi Sunak expresses himself rather than necessarily pointing to any kind of lack of agency on his point. I mean, ultimately, it is up to him or at least up to him and, and his cabinet as to when they go. Uh, I mean, I think clearly what he wanted to do was to try and stop this speculation about May running out of control and affecting him in the same way that it did Gordon Brown in, in 2007 when, when Brown didn't rule out an election categorically and, and then got into trouble because you know he bottled it, as it were, at the last minute. So, I mean, I, I think he's probably managed to do enough in order to, to stop that happening. But of course, he hasn't stopped Labour from saying that he's running scared from the electorate by not holding an election sooner rather than later. This is the joy for the political strategists, isn't it? Or, or, or the observers thereof? Because the idea that if you give a date, then that commits you. If you don't give a date, then your opposition can turn around and say, you've bottled it. Yeah, I mean, he is really sort of damned if he does, you know, damned if he doesn't, um, to be honest. But for all the kind of froth around the, you know, announcement or quasi announcement yesterday, I think we still have to point to the fact that the fundamentals don't look very good for the Conservative Party. I mean, if you look at polling on uh, the state of the economy, on the state of the NHS, and we've got a doctor strike um, going on at the moment, obviously. Uh, and you look at the way that people regard Rishi Sunak in comparison to Keir Starmer, who isn't that popular, but he's a lot more popular than Rishi Sunak. Uh, you'd have to say that the Conservatives are going to have to do an awful lot to be able to turn this around, even if they go in, say, November, which seems to be the uh, date of choice as far as most commentators are concerned. From a, in, as you're um, in your position of being professor of politics, um, 2024 must be possibly the most exciting or or, or dread-inducing year of your political of your professional life. Because isn't it 40 percent of the world holds it holds its um, national elections this year, and there yeah. is this slightly strange situation that. In the greater scheme of things, where what might be an enormous seismic political change here in the United Kingdom, where the Conservatives lose and, and Labour to return to power, the United Kingdom does not figure in one of the as one of the big events, does it? No, I mean, if you're looking at you know population size and the perhaps impact on you know the world economy and geopolitics, you'd have to be looking obviously to. Uh, Russia, to some extent, if you think that qualifies as a democratic election, you'd obviously have to be looking to the United States in November and also, of course, India uh, as well. So, yes, it is a bumper year for election enthusiasts. Fortunately, I don't really have to write about or research uh, any of those. Uh, I have to just concentrate on the on the UK uh, contest. But, you know, that does uh, bring up this question of the extent to which the US election might affect things uh, uh, over here. Uh, and obviously, if we're talking about, you know, for example, the November the 14th election, as some people are talking about here, then we will have had the US election just a week or so before that. Um, you know, were President Trump to win that election, you know, would that make a difference to the way that the voters thought about what they wanted to do uh, over in the UK? All right. So um, I'm going to put you on the spot then. When is the UK general election? I think it'll be the autumn. I mean, I, I don't know where which side of the US election it will be, um, but I'm pretty sure it'll be the autumn. I, I don't think Rishi Sunak is likely to want to give up being prime minister before he has to. And at the moment, it looks like that at some point he is going to have to give up being prime minister. But let's see. Anything could happen, I guess. Tim Bale, thank you as ever for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Briefing.
finally today, in a former mill town between Providence, Rhode Island and Boston, Massachusetts, is one of the last supper clubs of its kind in the northeastern United States. Monocle contributor Marisa Masria Katz takes us inside to meet its owner, his adoring fans and a musician whose love of the place has kept him playing there for years. The list of singers who've performed at Chan's Fine Oriental Dining is long and breathtaking. A who's who of jazz and blues legends. Dizzy Gillespie, Leon Redbone, Aztec Two-Step, Tab Benoit, Watermelon Slim. Shamika Copeland, she was here, she'd been singing here since she was like a teenager. And she's now she's one of the top uh, blues divas in the world. Kim Wilson from the Fabulous Thunderbirds. That's John Chan, the owner. We're standing in the middle of a long hallway filled with dozens of pictures of some of the musicians who've played here over the years. That's Honey Boy Edwards. He, uh, he played until almost 90 years old, and he was the uh, last person to have seen Robert Johnson alive. Robert Johnson is uh, famous for selling his soul to the devil to play the blues. John is taking me on a tour of the space. The walls are painted emerald green, and above us, special rose-colored tiles. The ceiling tile it was, uh, was made in Taiwan. It was a hot stamp with, uh, I think, made of teak wood. It was uh, the, uh, the classic dragon and phoenix design. Beautifully done. In the large dining room are Chinese landscapes, a bronze relief of peacocks, colorful paintings of jazz musicians mid-performance. There's also a horseshoe-shaped bar lit by LED lights, and a red-eyed dragon lamp that sticks out from the wall. And then there's the crown jewel, the rosewood front doors. They're from China, and my parents were there, and he had this custom-made just for this entrance. And it's uh, all hand-carved with a warrior and, uh, and the maiden, and uh, it's uh, been here for many years. John moved with his family to New York from Hong Kong at the age of 10. A few years later, they moved to Woonsocket, Rhode Island, and took over the restaurant, which had been around since 1905. Back then, it was called the New Shanghai. That time, Chinese food was very exotic, so people doesn't know what it is. And so somebody invented this chow mein and chop suey sandwiches. What chow mein sandwich is? A piece of white bread, chow mein noodle, chow mein, which is... Onions, celery in a brown sauce, another slice of white bread on top of that, and brown gravy on top. And at that time, we were selling for like probably five cents, ten cents. And uh, for our centennial celebration, we had one day special chow mein chop suey sandwiches for 25 cents. And they were coming by the busload. John started to work at the restaurant, first washing dishes, then cooking, and eventually waiting tables. But when he went to college, everything changed. That's when I discovered the jazz and blues music, and I thought maybe this might work in Woonsocket. He asked his father if he could invite some musical acts to chance, and he said yes. So we tried it out in the old restaurant, you know, we moved the tables and set up a stage, you know, and uh, started with local artists, and then eventually expanded to more regional. It took off, so much so that when the bank next door moved out, John took it over and turned the vault into a 125-seat club. John calls the space, which is opposite the main dining area, the Four Seasons Banquet Room. 
and it became a passion for me. And uh, fortunately, we were living in New England, where a lot of great musicians in the area. We have Berklee College of Music in Boston, also New England Conservatory. And so all these great products that came out of this uh, great music school were living in the uh, New England area, so we have a rich pool of artists to choose from. Thank you. John Chan, everybody, come on! It didn't take long till it was anointed one of the best music venues in the state. And then came the awards. He was inducted into the Rhode Island Music Hall of Fame. He got a Keeping the Blues Alive Award from Memphis, Tennessee's Blues Foundation. And so many more. It also earned the club a special motto, home of egg rolls, jazz, and blues. One of this past weekend's headliners was an act that's been performing here since the 90s, Papa Chubby. I asked the singer before he went on stage what kept him coming back year after year. John Chan. Now, first and foremost, John is one of my favorite people in the universe. I like to refer to him as a raconteur because take a look around, around this place, man. It's like a cultural collision which is a beautiful thing. But, he tells me, there's more. You could tell he has reverence for the music and the musicians, and he's, he really gets into going up there and to his, his introduction, getting everybody's na- name right. None of these club owners know the musicians' names. They don't care who's playing bass and drums. John does. Moments before the music begins, John was getting the house ready, making sure people were in their seats and menus on the table. He stopped for a moment, taking in the crowd. They are a very receptive audience, and they, they love the intimacy of the room. It's just a great vibe, and the energy is like, like electric some night. Magical. And... As he's done for over four decades, John takes the stage and introduces tonight's act to an audience that seems to clap for him as much as for the show they're about to see. The special leader, Samuel Noli, my good friend, the great Papa Chubby. Please welcome to the top of the street of Papa Chubby. Thank you. For Monocle Radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, I'm Marissa Masria Katz. Thank you, Marisa. And that's all we have for today's edition of The Briefing. The warmest of thanks to all my guests and to the producers too, Lillian Fawcett and Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and to our studio manager, Steph Chungu. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time, but for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. 